So uh, today we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 17, uh, the uh, transfiguration of Jesus. We have been walking through a series of messages talking uh, this month in February about who Jesus is. Uh, Pastor Scott first week talked about the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Last week we talked about the fact that Jesus is the Christ the anointed one. And this week, we want to hear what God the Father has to say about his son in chapter 17, where he says that Jesus Christ is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So let's read this passage of scripture and uh, dive into it. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before him. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Amen. Let's pray quickly and ask God to bless his word to our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that as we open your word, your pure, infallible, inerrant, inspired, life-giving word, that you would give us the ears to receive what you have to say to us in these pages. Help us to receive them, to understand them, and to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. For Jesus' sake alone we pray. Amen. So, last week we talked about the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus, uh, right, you remember, says, yes, that's correct. Um, and then, right after that, Jesus, right after Peter's announcement, uh, Jesus begins to tell him and tell his disciples something else. Now, now you've got that part. But here's an extra part that you're going to start learning now, he says. I'm going to die. I'm going to be arrested. I will be betrayed. I will suffer. I will be rejected. I will die. And I will rise again on the third day. Well, this is preposterous. God's chosen one, the anointed one, is going to be rejected. The, the greatest gift of all from heaven is going to be cast aside and trampled upon and defeated. That's the way this story works. And they were shocked by it. They couldn't even, it couldn't even compute about a crucified Christ. And so uh, Peter rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. So what we see here right away is while the, though the disciples understand a certain amount of who Jesus is, they understand that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, you have gotten that far. But they still don't understand so much more 
about who Jesus is, right? It's just like you and me. There's always more to learn about who Jesus is as we follow him, as we read our Bibles, as we go to church, as we live our lives. We are consistently growing and learning more and more about this man that we thought we, we knew well. And then later on in life, you're like, wow, I, don't, I, I feel like I've never really known him before now. And, and it's always fresh and always new. Well, after six days, we're told in this passage here, Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John. So what I want to do today uh, in this sermon, just so you're aware of what we're going to do here, I'm going to walk through the passage with you. Um, and then after that, I'm going to give you five takeaways from the passage. So that's what we're going to do here. I'm going to walk through the passage, just walk through the story itself, and then we will uh, get some takeaway thoughts uh, for it afterwards. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain by themselves, right? And um, you can imagine that Peter and James and John, the three, there's three selected disciples that Jesus has chosen. He's selected to come up this high mountain with him to be witnesses of some important event. And we can imagine that the disciples know that something big is going to happen, right? Because for one thing, um, he's only taking a few of them. But second of all, big things happen in the Bible on mountaintops, right? So we just read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 5, a reminder of the big event that happened on the mountaintop of Mount Sinai, right? When God gave the law to his people and spoke the Ten Commandments. Uh, there was a big deal with the mountain with Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice. They went to Mount Moriah. And earlier on in Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 5, we're told the Sermon on the Mount happened on a mountain, right? He went up a mountain and called those whom he desired to himself, called them up and sat down and taught them. Well, similarly here, the, the disciples probably have a hunch that Jesus is about ready to, to give them something new, some further revelation. They know something's going to happen as they go up this mountain by themselves. It's just these four men, Peter and two brothers, James and John, the sons of thunder, and Jesus himself. And he leads them up a high mountain there. Well, what happens, we are told in verse 2, is that while they are up on the mountain, it says he was transfigured before them. The idea is literally he metamorphed before them. That's actually the Greek idea. He assumed a different shape, a different appearance. He looked so different, a different form, literally is what it means, a change of form. Uh, we're told a couple of characteristics of what this looked like. His face, we're told, shone like the sun. Now, this is somewhat different than, remember Moses, when Moses in Sinai, right, he went into the presence of the Lord. We're told his face would glow, but his face was only reflecting the glory of the Lord. But Jesus' face beams forth as the source of all light from it and shines this, this radiant light beaming forth, powerful like the sun upon the disciples. Now, of course, if you want to do something really uh, uh, dumb, I guess, you could go outside and go stare at the sun, especially in the summertime, and it hurts your eyes, right? Well, here's Jesus. This is this otherworldly light beaming forth from his person. This is not something of this world. 
We're also told that his clothes became white as light. Elsewhere in the other gospel accounts, it says they're whiter than anybody on earth could bleach them. So no matter how often you were to bleach these clothes, you could dump the whole bottle into your washing machine and you would not get them as pure and otherworldly white as they were on Jesus's body. Again, manifesting that what Jesus is showing them is a side of himself that they have never seen. Here is this man that they've ate with, this man that they've sat with, this man that they've seen in the boat with them. They've probably slept by him on their travels throughout Galilee. They've heard him talk. They've seen him eat. He looks like a normal human being, but now all of a sudden he's assumed or at least showing forth this different form. And it's such a contrast from this ordinary carpenter from Galilee that they thought they knew. And now beaming forth is the light and divinity of God blaring forth from him. Psalm 104 verse 1 says about God, You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Well, on top of that, they see Jesus here. He's beaming forth, totally transformed, transfigured before them. And then what else happens? It says, and behold, you could kind of think about it saying like this. And right then and there, before their very eyes, what happens? There appears to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, conversing with him, having a conversation there. Now, you know. For these Galilean Jewish fishermen, this was a huge deal because they knew about Moses. They knew about Elijah. Moses was the one who had given them the law, the commandments, that if a man does them, he will live by them. You just saw the, 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 the description of the account that happened in Mount Sinai when Moses stood between the people of God on that terrifying day. When the Lord descended in a black cloud with thunder and lightning and the sound of a trumpet and the voice that shook the earth. And Moses was right there. Moses was the one that forever after, right, whenever they talked about the law, you'll often see in the Old Testament, it's the, the law of Moses. And then on top of that, not only is there Moses, right, the one who is kind of the, the premier teacher of the law, the commandments, the rules, the statutes that God gave to Israel. But there's Elijah. And Elijah is, in a sense, a stand-in as the, one of the premier excellent prophets of the whole Old Testament. Because whereas Moses is the one through whom the law was given, Elijah, along with all the other prophets, was the one through whom the law was continually enforced and proclaimed upon Israel. And both Moses and Elijah, if you know the story, you can do your homework uh, later on today and go read this. Elijah also appears at Sinai. Remember, he runs away to the mountain and he hears the Lord speak to him there in a still small voice. So here before uh, Peter and James and John is Jesus. And he's talking, conversing with Elijah and Moses. It's almost like... It's almost like Mount Rushmore here, right? You go and you've got the pantheon of the greats of Israel. Moses and Elijah. And now, what are Peter and the disciples thinking? And now Jesus is right there with them. He's right there on the mountaintop. Right there alongside all of the great prophets and the men of Israel. Bringing the law of God to the people. 
And so Peter, seeing all of this, we're told in verse 4, tells Jesus, Lord, it is good we are here. In other words, what a privilege. Wow, we, this is awesome. If only everybody else could see this. Because then they would believe, right? If everybody could come here and see that, look, Jesus, you're talking with Moses and Elijah. The law. If they would see this, they would see that, 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 that you're equal with them. You're, you're in the line of prophets alongside of them. And so what does he say? If you wish, Jesus, if you want, I, I myself will make three tents here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In other words, we're going to make this transfiguration time last for a long time. Maybe even we'll bring all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the people of Israel, and they'll come to this mountaintop and they'll realize, you're the Christ. You're right up there with Moses and Elijah. And I'll build three tents because I'm honoring you, Jesus, because you're right alongside of them. Wow, this is awesome. What a privilege it is. Moses gave us the law. Elijah enforced the law. And now Jesus is really going to make the law a reality in our lives. Well, we're told in other gospels that when Peter says this, he doesn't know what he's saying. He's terrified. He's overcome. And he's probably, like all of us, still kind of has a little bit of confidence because remember, he's the one who found out that Jesus was the Christ before any of those guys. So he's, yes, Lord. And he, the hint behind Peter's words is he's thinking, of course, this is the, the Lord's going to say, of course, Peter. Yeah, go, go knock yourself out. You're so, you're right again, Peter. But what happens? He was still speaking. So he's still jabbering away when right then and there, what happens? A bright cloud overshadowed them. We're told in the Bible, oftentimes clouds are a manifestation of God's holy presence. The cloud came down on Sinai. God delivered his people with a pillar of cloud. Whenever the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God, we're told the cloud entered it and you couldn't enter it. The cloud came down upon the temple at Solomon when Solomon was around. And now that holy cloud of God is descending over these disciples. The holy cloud of God descends, comes over them. And from that voice, from that cloud of voice, a voice. And notice, by the way, I love the way the writer says it. Just a voice. Now, we all know who this is. This is God the Father. But it's simply a voice. Remember earlier, Pastor Scott read that on Sinai, Moses reiterates over and over. And you can read this in Deuteronomy. He reminds them over and over, you saw no form. You did not see God with a body or with hands because God doesn't have a body or hands in his divine nature, does he? You only heard a voice, the word speaking to you. And he spoke out of fire. Well, here, a voice that shatters the earth that creates the world is speaking now. And just as he spoke from Mount Sinai long ago, now he speaks again on another mountain to these three disciples and says this, this, this one right here, this Jesus of Nazareth, this one is my beloved son. This one is my son, my beloved one. 
with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He says, this is my son. The implication and the, uh, from the grammar, you can see this. He's saying this, this one alone is my son. Moses is not my son. Elijah is not my son. They were my servants. But this one is not simply a servant. He's my son. He also adds further uh, description to him. It says, this is my son, the beloved one. Now, part of the problem when you try to talk about what love is, and I've heard this recently, is, you know, if I give you a definition of love, it's probably not going to do any good because we all really know love when we see it. We know about the love between a father and his son. It's almost like here, Peter here is saying, Jesus, you're, you're an equal right alongside Moses and Elijah, and he thinks he's honoring Jesus. And the father almost has a holy impatience about him. And while Peter's still speaking these things, he gets right in the middle of Peter and says, no, 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 no. This one's my son. Those guys are not my son. It's kind of like, you know, one of the things you see in the, in the Bible, um, it's fascinating about a son is that he's with you. In John chapter 1, verse 18, he describes Jesus and he says, No one has ever seen God at any time. The only God, he says, who is at the Father's side, who is in the bosom of the Father. Now that terminology is used elsewhere in the Gospel of John. And it's used whenever it says that Jesus or that John at the Last Supper reclined upon Jesus' side. That's how they used to eat, right? You used to lay down on your side and you used to recline against somebody. And so John, we're told, reclined right next to Jesus. And that's the image we're given of what it means for Jesus to be the son of the Father. He's eternally reclined at the side of the Father. He's always been with the Father. Whenever I have my boys, one of the things do like if I'm sitting on the couch or if I'm outside, um, you know, we're playing basketball or if we're out in the garage or if we're going doing this, that or the other thing, they're with me. They're with me. They're my boys. They're my son. And that's what we're told about this son. He has always been with God and God has never been without the son in him he says, the word was with God and the word was God. And this is the son. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. I've chosen him. I've selected him. This is my son. Those were servants. Those were prophets. They were great men of God. But don't ever confuse them with my son. Listen to him. In other words... They work for him. He is not their equal. They are not colleagues. They were servants that worked within the house. He's a son who's over the house. We're told elsewhere in John chapter 8, the difference between a slave and a son is the slave does not remain forever, but the son abides and remains forever. 
He's always with me. Listen to him. So in other words, you listen to the words of Jesus and Jesus alone. It doesn't mean that you don't read the Old Testament, but it means this. Whenever you read the Old Testament, you read them as the words of Jesus to you. They're, they work for Jesus. Jesus doesn't simply work alongside them. Well, what happens? The disciples hear this. They fall on their faces before the Lord, and they are terrified. These are images that are found all throughout the Old Testament, that whenever God's people come into the presence of the majesty, the glory, the splendor, the weightiness of God in all of his godness, they fall on their faces. They're terrified. They're scared to death. They're quaking in their boots. They're wondering, is the earth just going to open up underneath us? But what happens? It's a beautiful verse. But Jesus came. Literally, he drew near. And he touched them. He touched them. Remember he, the hands that touched the leper? The hands that touched Peter's mother-in-law? The hands that broke the bread? The hands that they had come into contact with over and over again? The hands that had been transfigured a moment ago, now gently in human flesh, touch them and say this, rise, have no fear. Don't be afraid anymore. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one, no one at all, but Jesus only, Jesus alone. Five things we can take away from this passage. First of all, you and I are here today where we are at in our lives and in our Christian journey, or if we're not Christians, you're still here today because Jesus has taken you and led you here. The disciples were told, notice the, uh, the verbs. It says, Jesus took them and Jesus led them. You are here today in this church building right now at this moment listening to this sermon because Jesus, whether you believe it or not, he has taken you and led you here right now. Now, some of you, um, maybe you're not believers yet. You know about Christianity. You know about Jesus. And maybe you've got certain ideas about Jesus, but you don't understand him completely. The disciples didn't understand him completely yet, right? They didn't even understand him after the vision that happened here. But you are here because Jesus has brought you here. And he's brought you here to show you himself. Or perhaps you're a Christian here today. You've been a Christian for many years or maybe a short number of years. You're here today because Jesus has brought you here. Jesus has taken you here to show you more about who he is and what he has come to do for you. You and I really have very little understanding of what the Lord is trying to teach us until we, we look in hindsight. But the Savior is the one that leads us, right? You know that old song, all the way my Savior leads me. Oh, the fullness of his love. And as he leads us and shepherds us and guides us, he's brought you here today and brought you to where you're at in your life today 
through all the difficulties, the sadness, the sorrows, the joys, the gladnesses, the blessings, and the bad times to bring you here. Jesus has been with you the whole time. Secondly, the thing you can take from this passage is this. There is more to Jesus than meets the eye. As you and I learn about Jesus, and as you and I hear about Jesus, we think initially when we first start off on this Christian walk that we really know a lot about who this guy is. And initially, think about the apostles, right? They initially see Jesus, and Jesus says, follow me. They follow him. And uh, really, the, the invitation to Christian discipleship is not an invitation to figure it out right away. What does Jesus say in John's gospel at the very beginning? Jesus says, come and see. Come and see. The Christian call to discipleship is to come and see Jesus. To come and learn about him. To come and see him as he performs miracles in the gospels, as he dies for the sins of the world. To come and see him, to come and follow him. There's always more to learn about Jesus. Always greater depths to explore and the reality is, is you and I never completely understand this man. That's okay. He completely understands us. Many of us begin to follow Jesus first as a way to clean ourselves up. We hear the call to follow Jesus. And so what do we initially try to do? Well, we try to reform ourselves, don't we? I'm not going to cuss. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to go do this. I'm not going to go see those people. I'm not going to hang out with those people. And Christianity to us initially, quite often, is the effort to put away practices, thoughts, desires that we had that we think we should probably get rid of. It's an effort to clean ourselves up. The reality is, though, is as you do that, and the deeper you do that, you realize, I can't do this. Why? Because sin goes much deeper than your thoughts, than your actions, even than your desires. You have a rocky mass of sin within you, your heart, that you can't change. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. And every single one of us have that heart of stone. And you can't change it, but Jesus can. He didn't come to help you reform your life. He didn't come to give you 10 points to help you to become a better person, to stop doing this, that, or the other thing. There's more to Jesus than meets the eye. And so as you follow Jesus, you learn more and more that Jesus is not just another Moses. Jesus is not just another Elijah. He's not just another prophet. And as he's transfigured and assumes this different shape, so to speak, and you learn more about who he is, you realize what Paul wrote in Philippians 2. That Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, and right here you're seeing Jesus not in his final state, but it's just a taste of the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The reality is, is no one took Jesus' life from him. This is the transfigured Lord of glory. He lays down his life for us. Thirdly, 
There's more to Jesus than meets the eye. And what does this mean? Thirdly, the law ends at the feet of Jesus only. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, the way of obedience has no end. The way of the law, the law of doing your best, trying harder, being more disciplined, woulda, shoulda, coulda, do this, don't do that, has no end. You cannot finish it, and you will never finish it on your own. You go try it. Go try it. There's always more to do. Your law work in your own heart and in your life is never finished. And it will never have an end. And we can never complete it. And it gets more painful and difficult the more you try to do it. Because on the one hand, what you do is you despair. Because the law drives you to think about yourself and yourself only. And how you're doing. And how you're feeling. And how you're doing compared to everybody else. And whether your life is good compared to everybody else's. But now... After you've tried to live the law, either despairing or then being prideful and then trying to come to church and act like you've actually got it together when you don't because you're lying to other people, because you're trying to lie to yourself so that no one actually realizes the infestation of sin that's in your heart. Jesus has come to show up today in this passage and in your life right now to stand right here in the middle of the pathway and say the law stops here. The law is done. The law says do. Jesus Christ says done. Jesus did not come to give us another law. He is not another Moses. He is not simply another Elijah. He did not come to give you a set of directives or principles or rules to live by. He did not come to simply show you how radical you need to live in order to obey the law. Rather, Moses and Elijah have been sent by God to drive you into the arms of Jesus. As it has been said before, there is nothing more for you to do than to know and believe that Christ has done all for you. That's it. That's the gospel. Fourthly, our ears must be glued to the mouth of Jesus only. Our ears, I'm stealing this. You know, I got this from Martin Luther. Our ears must be glued to his mouth, he said. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Our ears must be glued to his mouth. God the Father tells you and me, listen to him. You don't go around and listen to the other voices in this world. They don't really, at some level, they really don't matter. You don't go back to the law or go to the law of Facebook or Twitter and try to make yourself appear better than you really are or try to put on a good uh, profile picture to show how happy and gleeful and wonderful your life is. It's okay to be honest. Jesus has come to take away your sins. Jesus has come to save you. You listen to him. You listen to Jesus' words. 
You listen to his words alone. Glue your ears to his mouth. Again, an old book says this. This then is perfect righteousness. To hear nothing. To know nothing. To do nothing of the law of works, but only to know and believe that Jesus Christ has now gone to the Father. And he sits at his right hand, not as a judge, but he has made to you, by God, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The law says do, God the Father says it's finished, take him, it's yours. Done. The war's over. We've won. The amazing thing is, is that we get to listen to the voice of God, as we heard earlier. Remember the, the people of God were saying this, who can listen to the voice of God and live? You have the privilege, friends, of knowing this. God's greatest manifestation of speaking to you does not come through fire. It does not come from a cloud. It does not come from an angel. It comes from the lips of a carpenter from Galilee who says things like, follow me, your sins are forgiven. I have overcome the world. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Listen to his voice and no one else's. Out of the man, Jesus Christ. Lastly, lift up your eyes and see no one but the beloved son of God, Jesus only. Notice, Jesus comes over and touches them and says, rise, have no fear. It's okay. You don't have to be afraid anymore because the purpose of this whole vision and the purpose of you being brought here today and the purpose of your whole life is that you will be driven away from yourself and scared, yes, scared and terrified of the law of God so that you will come into the loving arms of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. And Jesus comes and tells you and me, have no fear. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You have to be afraid of, you, you can be afraid of your sin or you can be afraid of anything else. But when God the Father tells you this, I've given you my son, listen to him and receive everything he's done for you. Just take him and know he's done all for you. That's it. And they lifted up their eyes and they saw no one, no one else, no more Moses, no more Elijah, no more cloud, but they saw Jesus only. They saw the beloved son of God with whom he is well pleased. The only way that you and I can know God truly is only and exclusively in and through this man, Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The only one who reveals the Father to us is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And so, you remember earlier I talked about the fact that um, Jesus is the one who has been eternally reclining with the Father. The amazing thing is, as you bring those two passages together, as we recline, and this is all faith is, is just reclining on Jesus. We actually find as we recline on Jesus, we're reclining on the Father. We're sons, we're daughters, not slaves, 
not mere servants. We're sons and daughters of the living God. As you recline upon Jesus and rest upon him, you recline and rest upon your father. And so as you and I leave this place today, I want you to know this and to see this only, to lift up your eyes and to see Jesus only. The law is good and the law teaches us how we ought to live. The law drives us into the arms of Jesus, but the law has a definite place. And in regards to our personal relationship with Jesus Christ and our righteous standing with God, it has no place. We are free. We need no one else. And so, the old hymn writer says, there for me, the Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love, I know, I feel. Jesus weeps, but loves me still. And as you leave this place today with your eyes lifted upon Jesus only, I want you to see Jesus here with his arms outstretched, ready to receive every single one of you. And if you're a Christian, to receive you again and again and again and again and again. But not simply you as well. His arms are outstretched over our communities. His arms are outstretched over the River Raisin. His arms are outstretched over our community, over our homes, our families, our schools, our neighbors. Here is Jesus. And as we looked at him, and we see no one else but Jesus only, the beloved Son of God given to us from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but we see God in Jesus. As we see him, we know he loves them, and we know that he loves us. And he calls each and every one of us to come away from our sins, to run into his arms, to feel his touch, and to believe his words, rise and have no fear and look at me only. This is our Jesus. Lift up your eyes, friends, and see this Jesus only given to us from the Father, overflowing with grace and truth. Amen. Let's close together in prayer, and then we will sing another song. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your beloved Son in whom you are well pleased. We thank you that he has been given to us who are sinners. And we confess today that we have sinned against you. We are not the people we should be. We have broken your law 10,000 times, 10,000. And our hearts, left to our own devices, are bent upon evil. But we thank you that the blood of Jesus covers even the sin that remains. He covers it all because it is finished. Help us to recline and rest upon Jesus today and look to you, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen.